many of you know that there's more churches now than ever before? There's... It's true, eh? <laughs> no, they're all there, that's right. I think it's fair to assume there's more Christians today than ever before. Doesn't that make you excited, though? Because it means that the church is increasing. It means that God is having more influence into the world today than ever before. It's awesome. It means that we're heading towards the end. It's getting closer and closer. It's exciting. But do you know that one of the basic tactics of the enemy is to redirect your attention and your focus off of that and onto all the bad that's happening in the world. And we can get caught into a perspective that thinks that evil is increasing when actually God is increasing. The enemy's camp is shrinking and he's freaking out. He's terrified. He's scared. Devils are scrambling to blind people to the truth that the church is on the rise. Amen? It's good news. When you know the devil comes in intense intimidation, you know that he's afraid. He's scrambling. And he did it from the beginning with Adam and Eve, right? He deceived them. He blinded their eyes to what was true. What was the truth, I should say. And so the devil today works extremely hard and to present to you something that may be true, but it is not the truth. So you can see something that's happening around you in the natural, and it can be true. It could be true that you're sick. It could be true that you're having difficulties. It could be true that you've got a bad relationship, or you're feeling a certain way that feels like something's coming against you in resistance, but that is not the truth the truth is something different. The truth is Jesus. The truth is what God says about you. The truth is what God sees in you. He sees that you are not a sinner, but you are a saint, that you are a son, that you are more than a conqueror, that you are a new creation, that you are part of this body, this corporate body of Christ, a royal priesthood, right? Something that is increasing, something that is getting stronger, something that the devil would never overcome. That is the truth. The truth is that you've been healed in Christ Jesus. By his wounds, you have been healed. By, his, by what he has done on the cross, he has redeemed you. He has bought you. He has bought your body, your soul, and your spirit forever. The devil does not own you. You are owned by God. So what right does he have to put anything on you? You have victory So, the Power and Love Conference we went to, uh, when was it, two, three weeks ago? It was a Power and Love Conference where Todd White and a few other guys, like William um, Hinn and Sean Smith came, and the conference was geared around prophetic evangelism. So they would preach, and then after the preach, they would have a session where all the people who wanted to, 
and were strongly encouraged to, would go out into the street, go out into the shopping centers, into the restaurants, and go and pray for people and just bless them and share the love of God with them. And the amazing thing is, out of all the Power and Love conferences that they've done all over the world, Perth broke the record for the most salvations in that four-day period. That is awesome. How good is that? It means the church is rising up in Perth, and some people think it's not. That is rubbish. It is a lie. God is excited. He's ecstatic. He's, he's in absolute uh, just shaking because of how good Perth is going to be and how much light and how much brilliance and how much, much of his glory is going to be released in this place. Sorry, I can feel my lips and that's sticking together. <laughs> In Genesis 11, it talks about the Tower of Babel. You know the story? Where all the people, they come together, they only spoke one language, and they were united together, and they built this city, and they built a tower that would stretch to the heavens to touch heaven. And God doesn't like it. So he comes down and splits up the languages, gives them different languages so that the whole thing just falls apart because they were trying to reach God in their own effort. They were trying to reach God in self-righteousness. But it's, God says this. He says, if they can accomplish this as a united people, nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Nothing will be impossible for them. And so my thought was, what about a people who are united under Jesus? The church is the most powerful weapon on the earth. Nothing will be impossible for us. Amen? It's not impossible to see the whole world saved. To see all of Perth saved. So what if the church, we actually believe what Jesus said, and instead of building from here up to heaven in human effort, we would actually build from heaven to earth and see heaven invade the earth. So, I don't know about you, but that I think that's pretty good. It gives me... It makes me excited. So, we've been doing this series. That was all just for free. That's not in my preach. Um, So we've been doing this series on This Is Us, who we are as Freedom Life, and uh, what we're all about, what our purpose is, what our mission is, what our foundation is. And then we've kind of been looking from that, what our distinctive identifying pillars are as a body, as a local church, that every single local church has the same foundation, has the same primary mission, and that is to display the, the splendor and the manifold wisdom of God. But each local church has different DNA, has a different flavor. It looks a little bit different, different personalities and leadership. So you've got different facets of God shining through his personality and his nature, shining through in all different ways. And so for us, we've been looking at these nine... Uh, Sorry, I haven't got them here for you today. Um, But we've looked at a church of grace. We've looked at a church of glory, which we did for a few weeks. And today, we're going to look at the third one, which is a church of guts. Guts. And that can mean a few different things, I guess, for different people. But to me, guts, when I say guts, I mean really we're talking about courage. We're talking about perseverance. We're talking about enduring we're talking about uh, 
being able to face things that are bigger than yourselves, right? And I think of a guy like, just for a few examples, uh, Rocky Balboa, you know, Rocky. And he's like, to me, someone who you could go, that's a depiction of guts. Because not, not, not so much that he, he was so devoted to win, but actually when you watch, especially the first movie, his devotion was actually to stand through the full 15 rounds of the fight because he didn't win. He was just able to stand firm throughout the whole thing and not get knocked down. And that sheer determination, that, that just ability to endure through it all, and then the victory was being able to endure. And so that is, to me, is like guts. But there's another guy, uh, you may have also watched this movie, which I think is pretty good, uh, but do you know of a guy called Desmond Doss? Probably don't. You do? Yeah, he is. That's right. So have you ever seen a movie called Hacksaw Ridge? Yep. So it's a battle of, let me write it down here. It's in Japan. It's like Okinawa. And it was apparently the most uh, bloodiest battle of World War II. And so this guy, Des, he's a Christian. He's a combat medic. But he refused and vowed to God that he would never pick up a gun. And so he had a pretty hard time trying to get to battle. And uh, it's because he's going through training and all that, saying he wants to serve, but he would refuse to pick up a gun. And so he even got thrown in prison because they're ordering him, pick up the gun, do, do your target practice or whatever. And he just refused. Anyway, eventually he gets in and he's able to go to this front, or he went to a few different ones, but he goes to this place called Hacksaw Ridge. He's the first... Uh, He's the only, sorry, U.S. soldier to go to war without a gun. And so he goes there, and this Axel Ridge is, is, is this big kind of cliff face, and the, the front or where the battle was going to be is on top. So it's on the ridge. And so they had the base camp down the bottom. They would climb up, and they would go to war on the top. Massive bloodbath. Both sides get smashed. There's people everywhere. And uh, so they, they retreat. And he stays without a gun to pick up the wounded and lower them down the cliff to get them out into safety. And so he's got guts. He, there's stories of him where, where he would, you can see it in the movie, where he would lay there and just be like, God, help me to get just one more. In the midst of the, like the Japanese people coming out and just picking off all the people who are not dead, and so he's there dodging bombs and all sorts, bringing them all down. In the end, he saves 75 people, lowering down. Some of them weren't even American. He got some of the other the enemy and lowered them down as well. I don't think they survived, but they, uh, they, he lowered them down. So he, got, he became the first what they call cons conscientious objector to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Amazing man, Desmond Doss. He had guts. Amen? And I would suggest to you, it wasn't natural. He had the Spirit of the Lord on him. He had supernatural guts. Can I say that? <laughs> so when we look at this topic in Scripture, we see that there's this kind of astounding high level of perseverance as well. But the interesting thing 
to me is when, you, when we look at this thing of courage, pushing through and persevering in the Bible, there's something that's often linked with extreme courage and extreme perseverance. Do you know what it is? Joy. You look at it throughout Scripture, often rejoicing and having joy or joyfully enduring is married together. There's a place, I believe, in the spirit where we can get to, where we can endure tremendous hardship with a smile on our face. Amen? Not grinning and bearing it because I have to, because I'm a Christian. Right? I have to love these people. I have to do this. I have to go through this thing because I'm a Christian. Not that. That's not what I'm talking about at all. All right? There's a place where we can get to where we endure hard times with joy because we know it's a catalyst for more of the weight of the glory of God that we get to experience. Romans 5. Sorry, I haven't got scriptures up there for you. But this is um, at the end of Romans 5, 5 verse 20. It says, where sin abounds, right, where there is great darkness, In that place, right next to it, grace is there in superabundance. It abounds even more than the sin that's there, over and above it. The word actually there literally means hyper-grace, hyper-superabundance of grace. So it annihilates sin completely. There is no contest. But here's the thing. Because of our eyes get distracted and we, our vision and perspective is not spiritual, we can focus on the things that are happening around us and we get fixated on the sin and on all the destruction and all the darkness, we can miss the superabounding grace that is right next to it. And often... I know I've done this plenty of times. We can see stuff going on in the natural that seems like it's against us and we label it spiritual discernment. And it's a mislabeling because we haven't discerned that God's grace, his goodness and his blessing is actually right next to it. What if... The hard environments we find ourselves in are in fact the fertilizer for the fruit of the Spirit in our life. I would go as far to say that there are grace, gifts, and levels of His glory that we can only be that can only be received in the climate of intense persecution and threat against the enemy and personal challenge. (laughs) I guess it's not really a nice kind of thought sometimes, but there's glory in an atmosphere of danger. I think of uh, the story of Elisha and his uh, servant. Do you know when he's there? And I think it's the Aramean army are coming to surround him, to kill him and to capture him. And his servant starts freaking out, going, we're going to die. Look at them. There's all these horses, there's all these chariots. They're going to come in and kill us. And 
Elisha is like, stop it. What's wrong with you? You don't see that there's more with us than there is with them. And so he's freaking out. The servant's gone, my, my master has gone nuts and he's going to basically get me killed. So Elisha says, like, praise, Lord, open his eyes. And his servant sees all the angels, all the armies and the chariots of fire that are all around them that are more than the enemy that's facing him. And interestingly, what happens is the other army gets blinded. Servants' eyes open, they get blinded to the point where Elisha has just no fear, can walk up to them and leads them on this big, long trek. Right? So he, his, the problem is perspective. Elisha had guts because of perspective. He could see right. He was able to spiritually discern what's going on, the whole picture, not just what's going on in the natural. How many of you know if you could see that, you'd probably be a little bit happy? It would give you a little bit of joy, wouldn't it? Knowing that you can't lose. Here's another thought. What if Goliath never challenged Israel? Because here comes David, right? Defeats, destroys the giant, which he never would have done if Goliath never turned up. And remember, Israel is terrified. They're in fear. They've forgotten who their God is. If Goliath never, cha- never challenged them, they would have never been lifted out of that place of fear into a place of victory and knowing who God is again. So the challenge, the opposition, the persecution that came against them was essential ingredient to lifting them into a higher realm, into a higher upgrade of who they are. We pray often, God, help me to grow. Lord, I just want to be better. I just want to grow more and more in you. And then here comes a Goliath and we're like, what the heck? What is this, God? He's like, that's your answer to prayer. At the end of, uh, sorry, yeah, it says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds all the more. But at the start of Romans 5, which is really cool, I found this. And I'm going to read in the Passion Translation, which I've never read before. And we'll start reading it now because it's pretty awesome. So Romans 5 verse 1, it says, What incredible joy burst forth within us as we keep on celebrating our hope of experiencing God's glory. What a verse right there. How awesome is that? What incredible joy bursts forth within us as we keep on celebrating our hope of experiencing God's glory. But that's not all. Even in times of trouble, we have a joyful confidence knowing that our pressures will develop in us patient endurance. And patient endurance will refine our character and proven character leads us back to that hope. And this hope is not a disappointing fantasy because we can now experience the endless love of cascading, of God's love cascading into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's awesome. How wonderful is that? Do you know that the atmosphere of heaven is one of absolute joy? 
absolute joy. The very air is electric with laughter and the rejoicing sounds of everyone who's there experiencing it. Can you, like, Dad was talking about imagining what heaven's like, and sometimes I get caught doing that, of how good and wonderful it is. And, and also sometimes I, I, God will sneakily kind of just give me this impression while that's happening of, like, you have no idea. Like, it's way better. I'm way better than any of your wild imaginations, right? It is so joy. Think of this. What would, it, what would it sound like in heaven when the Holy Spirit laughs? Don't you think that's going to go like throughout the whole place? Jeez. I don't, I don't even... Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, talking about Jesus, he endured the cross. As traumatic and horrifying experience it was, in Isaiah 52, it talks about how Jesus was tortured, brutalized so violently that his humanity was unrecognizable that he was smashed and thrashed so violently that you couldn't even recognize him as being human. That's pretty intense. I know they do a pretty good job in like the passion in the movie, but you could still see that he's a human. The sin and all the disease and the sickness and all the pressure of the whole history of the weight of sin was put into one container, into Jesus. And he, he experienced the full punishment of it. That's intense. But the Bible says, as terrible as that was, Jesus was fixed on the glory and the joy that was set before him and that gave him the strength to endure. The joy of the Lord was his strength and courage so profoundly that he was able to endure the most a horrific death that anyone has ever endured and ever will endure in all history. He surrendered himself with joy. That's powerful. We need joy. So I just want to look at... There's another guy who's pretty well-known in the Bible who's uh, got some guts, and his name's Paul, the Apostle. So I'm just going to read out some stuff from him. This is him talking in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In in this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. This is the context of what he's saying, remember? He's saying this, I'm a fool to say this. So are there, he, are they Hebrews, talking about the others who are persecuting in that? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this, in brackets. But I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death Again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
and I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And he goes down 2 Corinthians 12, verse 6. He says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted. And he goes on, verse 9, he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power will rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's a couple more things he said. Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. All that list of all the stuff that he'd gone through, he says that is not even worth saying in the same sentence of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, for our light and momentary troubles. Does that sound light and momentary? It is in the, pers- in the right perspective. Light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He had some guts, and it was because he had a correct perspective and he was filled with joy. Here's the thing. Paul, he's, he's pretty well known for this thing of endurance and, and going through being in prison pretty much half of his life. But the other thing that he's very well known for is what? That's right. Writing, the, writing half or pretty much all of the New Testament, right? His, his incredible revelation of grace is what he's known for. So... He'd encountered the brilliance of the gospel, the wonder of it. It smashed him down onto the ground and he was blinded by it and he got up a different person. I would like, I imagine Paul is completely possessed and overcome by the joy of his salvation. It was, his, it was the key to being able to endure such, such hardship because he had a perspective of heaven, he had a perspective of glory. And you can read lots of times uh, in other places where it talks about he's going to run his race, right? He's got he's to endure. He's got to get to the end of his life and go and receive that crown of glory for being able to persist and run the race that has been marked out for him. So he had this eternal perspective all the time of knowing where he's going and his mission here on earth. And I'm, I'm so convinced he was full of joy that he was happy because of it. And many people are scared of the grace of God because they think it produces lazy Christians. What a lie. 
Paul was one of the most, like, the greatest, you could argue, the greatest revelation of grace. And you look at his life, he is not a lazy person. He was able to persist and endure much more than many of us ever could. Grace of God empowers you to be able to live a joyful, enduring, full of guts and courage kind of life. So this hyper-grace people go on about will radically empower you and it will cause you to go into places that everyone else is terrified to go into because you have such a perspective of victory that nothing can beat you grace of God it gives you guts what are we going for time we're right you're right got another story for you. Have, have you ever heard of a guy called Richard Wormbrand? I think that's how you say it. I hope I say this story correctly. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, he was a man who was living in Romania, I believe at the time, or he was a Romanian person, and he lived uh, in a time where Marxism and communism was extreme, very extreme. And so he begins to preach that Christianity and communism is incompatible. He goes as far as to devote part of his life to proving and compiling evidence that Karl Marx, the guy who pretty much brought in all the communism and stuff, uh, was a Satanist. And so they didn't like him that much. And uh, so he's preaching this and they don't like what's going on, and they take control of the churches, and he's forced into the underground churches, and he continues preaching. But one day he gets captured, and they put him in prison. And he's in prison, I think, for 14 years. Some people say longer. Some, I've heard some people say up to 30 years. But I believe it was 14 years, and he was brutally tortured, like unbelievably tortured. They would burn him, they would freeze him in blocks of ice, they would whip him, they would smash him around. They would, uh, one, one story talks about how he was, uh, they would beat his feet to the point where the skin and the flesh would come off. The next day, they would do it again until they're smashing just purely on bone. So, and he, he kept preaching in that place and in that prison. So they put him also in solitary confinement, right? 12 feet underground, no windows, no, no light, and even no sound. The guards would put felt on their feet so that they, they, he couldn't even hear them walking around. The idea is for him to go crazy. And normally when you put someone in that, from my thinking, the scene on movies, you go in for like one week, two weeks, right? Three years. Three years he's in there. And the th- he says that the only thing that kept him sane was that he would sleep during the day so that at night he could prepare messages and preach a message out loud in his cell. And he did that for three years. And at, towards the end of his life, he, he makes a statement saying that he could remember 350 of the messages that he prepared in that time. That's pretty full on. So anyway, what a man already. But the, the people in there are going crazy because he's still preaching. So like, what do you do with him? So they take him out, 
put him in front of a firing squad and they go to kill him, he's got a smile on his face, he's happy, he's like, whatever. And they're, they're like, what is going on? Maybe he's just thinking he's happy because he gets to die. But they were wrong. So they go to shoot him. Every single gun in the squad misfires. They take the guns, they shoot it in the air, bullet comes out. Point it back at him, gun misfires. So the captain, or whatever, the commander or whoever it is in, in charge of the squad, pulls out his revolver, puts it in his mouth, opens fire, nothing happens. And Richard, Richard he's, uh, he starts like laughing and just going, don't you understand? Don't you know? Like, my time is not up. I'm here, my purpose hasn't been fulfilled yet. So what do you do with that kind of person? And so that's amazing to me. What a guy, right? Eventually he does get out and he preaches and he's written a bunch of books that you can read. Um, man, atmosphere of heaven is absolute joy. And the devil doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know it confuses him completely. He has no clue what to do when you're in a, in a place of joy. I want to share one story which I haven't prepared just because I've got a little bit of time. Um, Graham Cook. You know Graham Cook? He talks of a story, and I hope I get this right, of when he was in an aeroplane, and uh, he's sitting there, and a guy comes and sits down next to him, and the guy next to him just says, uh, well, I'm a Satanist, and I'm here on assignment to curse you. And Rich, and sorry, and Graham being the kind of funny guy that he is, says, all right, great, let me have it. And so he starts going through, and this guy starts cursing Graham. And uh, he gets down, he's like about five minutes into it, and Graham's like, just let me let's stop, stop, stop. And he goes, and he gets up and gets his notepad and pen, and then comes down, and he's like, all right, let's start again. And he starts writing down all these curses that the guy has given to him. And then after again, he's like, after about two or three minutes, he's like, wait, wait, wait. The first two that you've got here, the first two or three are, are okay. Right? But when you get further down, the rest of this is just rubbish. This isn't good. Like, maybe what we can do, we'll take five or ten minutes and you can regroup. I'm going to go get like a drink and I'll come back and then we're going to start again. So he does, comes back, and he's like, oh, do you want a drink as well? Just to rub it in a little bit more. So he comes back, he's like, all right, the first three you've got here, that's, that's good. Let's start from after that. And then he goes through it, and he's, again, he's just like, this is not good. He's like, have you, how long have you even been a Satanist for? And the guy's like, 25 years. And he's like, oh, you're not a very good one, eh? So the last guy who came along was way better. <laughs> And this guy is completely confused. And he says, you've got, to, you've got to understand something here. God has promised me that whatever curse is spoken over my life, he's going to turn into a blessing. And out of this, what you've got here, I'm not going to get anything good out of this. <laughs> and just that level of kind of, that's perspective, right, of absolute joy. He has this perspective of knowing where sin abounds, super, like grace and blessing and something of an upgrade is there right next to it. And he has this eternal perspective. And when you see that, it leads you into such joy. 
that you can mess with the enemy. And he wants that for every single one of us, that we will encounter resistance, encounter persecution, encounter places where there's this personal challenge, and we would see that instead of curse, there is blessing. And when we see it, there is such joy that we mess with the enemy. Amen? That's good. So Galatians 5, I'm just going to end, end with this. Galatians 5.22, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. We've got lists of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Forbearance is the one I want to look at. It's a funny kind of word. Forbearance, what does it mean? I didn't even know. What did you say, sorry? That's right. So it's basically, it's like patience, enduring. Right? It's, it's long-suffering. The Amplified Version clarifies it and says, not the ability to wait, but rather how we are to wait, to wait well. Right? Waiting with a godly attitude, waiting in peace, waiting with joy in our heart. It's this thing of forbearance. Long-suffering, being able to endure. The incredible thing to think about this is that this forbearance or perseverance is actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's a character trait of God. It's part of his personality. So God has guts. God has extreme courage, extreme endurance, more than anyone that you would ever meet. He is able to endure and able to have uh, an ability to stand up to things, even though there's nothing bigger than him. But he has that as part of his character and part of his nature. And so the subject uh, is huge in the Bible, really, this thing of having courage and having guts and being able to endure, it's massive. I mean, we talk about the people just like Jesus. We talk about Paul, Peter, and the apostles. But you can look at Abraham, Jacob. You can talk about Joseph, David, Gideon, Joshua, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel. There's stacks of them. They've all got stories where they've been able to endure and have extreme courage and perseverance. But what they're really doing is reflecting the nature of God that they've seen in their own life. It's not us to go, oh yeah, I'm trying to do this in my own strength, when actually it's a character, a perspective of God moving through you. It talks about, I can't remember, Romans 14, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness is God's, peace is God's. The joy is God's. It's all in the Holy Spirit. It flows through you as you are partnering with the Holy Spirit. It's not yours, it's his. It's just like the Father to be courageous. It's just like him to push through in such a way that just spreads intense joy as if there's no way he can lose. So we're talking about a fruit of the Spirit. And how do the fruits grow? Is it through your striving? No. It produces fruit naturally. All you have to do is plant the tree in the right environment 
and it is able to produce fruit that can multiply. It reproduces itself. The environment there is part of the key, though. So when we understand who we are, what tree we are a part of, and receive all the nutrients that the Spirit provides, we begin to naturally produce the fruit in our life. So how do we live like as a church of guts? We, how do we persevere in these tough times? And there are going to be tough times and we're facing them more and more because our message and our voice is becoming more and more stronger in the city. And the devil is beginning to recognize it more and more. And so right when there's an intensif- intensification of uh, persecution, of difficulties and hardship that's trying to push down what God is doing, actually what it's doing is pointing out right there there's an upgrade for us. Right where this thing that's trying to curse us is a blessing. It's going to be the stepping stone that lets us get to the next level. I had a vision a little while ago of uh, falling into into a grave and uh, bang, down into the thing, no way out. And it's just like six foot, eight foot, just thing that I have to try and climb out. And as I was in that place of this thing that's just knocked me in, I started to see steps that begin to form all the way out. And the steps were actually this thing of realizing there's blessing right in this hole. That even in the deep places, God is right there with me. And he's superabounding with his grace. And as you begin to see that more and more, it gives you the steps of victory to be able to walk out. And what that does, it means anytime you fall back in there, the steps are still there to walk straight back out. You don't lose that victory. So don't be afraid of tough times. Don't be afraid because you are the light. Philippians 4, Paul says this thing of rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Why? Because rejoicing lifts your focus off the natural and puts it back on Jesus. It puts it towards heaven, setting your minds on things above to where you see that there is no way you could lose, that you have victory in him, that there's such a sense of joy, and it lifts us into that place of being able to have a good spiritual perspective of the landscape where you can walk just as Elisha did and have no fear, and you can endure with joy. Uh, There's heaps of other things we could look at as well. Psalm 16, it talks about how in his presence is the fullness of joy. And uh, I think it's Psalm 23, it says, In the presence of my enemies, he presents or lays out a table of feasting. In the atmosphere of uh, something coming against you, of enemies trying to intimidate you, in that place... That's where there's blessing and things that you can feast on. Not at home, away from the enemy. It's almost like on the battleground. So a church of glory, church of grace, church of guts. That's who we are. Amen? Cool. I'm just going to quickly pray and we'll be done. Thank you, God that you are a courageous God, that you are a God of guts, and that we don't have to try grin and bear stuff, but you actually produce your character and your nature in and through us, 
as we fix our eyes on you, as we look into your, into your eyes, we actually see who we are in the reflection. And we just thank you, Jesus. I just pray for every single one of us again that our eyes and our perspective would just be lifted to that place of seeing the landscape of one where you are there and you are invading that next to every curse, next to every opposition, right there is superabounding grace. That's a stepping stone for us to, to walk into an upgrade of your glory, of your goodness, of your wonder into more and more of who you are. So I thank you, Father, for that. I just pray today that what has been said would solidify so strongly in us that it would bypass logic, it would bypass reason, it would bypass this thing of trying to understand and it would go straight into a place of revelation in our heart that we would be able to walk it out with such a, such a sense of just knowing it, not just having to explain it, but being able to know God, you are in me, and Christ in me is the hope of glory. I thank you, Father, for that. I thank you that you are so joyful, that you are so happy, and that I pray that every time we see you, we would see you with a smile on your face instead of a hammer waiting to smack us when we're wrong. Thank you, God. Just bless everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.